biblical answers for those has been really helpful. We are going to be in Matthew chapter 26 today, and uh, we're talking about betrayal. Now, when I, when I say the word betrayal, it's often our default to consider ways in which others have betrayed. That's just our human nature, right? You immediately think, oh, yeah, betrayal. I mean, I remember when so-and-so did this or said that, or I felt betrayed when this friend said this thing or when this leader made this decision. I felt betrayed when my spouse or my coworker or they went behind my back, whatever that was. And yet I think that we will do well this morning to put ourselves into the betrayer's shoes and simply ask ourselves, are there moments in our life and faith in which we have betrayed? And it's a hard question to, to ask, but it's an important one to answer as we walk through the passage this morning. We see three scenes. Um, there's Simon the leper's house, there's the garden, and then there's the upper room or the, the um, Last Supper. And in each of these three scenes, there's three betrayals. And we're going to look at three different betrayors in each of these scenes and begin to help our own story fit into the story of the followers of Jesus. Now, I'm recognizing that as we walk through these famous, like, um, kind of benchmark passages, we're often looking at the, the teaching and the response and reaction of Jesus Christ and being able to build in our mind a character of Christ as we look at these scenes. And this morning, we're going to take a different approach. We're not so much looking to the words and the teachings and the responses of Jesus as much as we are the responses of his followers so that we can begin to see ourselves in their shoes and hopefully take some corrective action as we walk forward in our own faith. So it's a little different approach this morning, and there's been much written and spoken on the Last Supper and the scene in Garden of Gethsemane and um, even the scene at Simon the Leper's house um, that I felt like it might be helpful for us to take a step back and, and see a different angle this morning. And I'm also recognizing that when I talk about betraying Christ, it actually requires that you've made a commitment to follow Jesus. So if you're in the room this morning and, and you're not a committed follower of Jesus, you're saying, I don't know, I'm not necessarily a, a sold-out Christian or a committed follower, or you know, I wouldn't necessarily say I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Um, first of all, I'm really glad you're here. I think this is a great place for you to be and to sit and to listen and kind of start to ask those questions of what, what does it mean to follow Jesus? So we're thrilled that you're here. But as I talk about betraying Christ or betraying your commitment to Christ, that would certainly require a commitment to Christ. And so I'm more addressing those who have committed to follow Jesus as Christians this morning as we walk through these passages. And so as we, as we jump in, um, do the best um, you can to place yourself in these scenes, picture the room, so to speak, because these are three descriptive scenes that we're going to see. And let's begin to ask ourselves, what does it mean to betray Christ according to the disciples? So chapter 26, verse 1. I'm going to read these relatively long scenes, but it's going to give us a good taste for what's taking place in these moments. So chapter 26, verse 1 says, When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar 
among the people. Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she's done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, there's a clear betrayal here. This is the one we often speak of, the betrayal of Judas going to the chief priest. But there's a specific order to the events here. This is placed right here after the scene at Simon the leper's house because it's connected to the moment in which Judas would finally be pushed over the top and need to go to the chief priest. So imagine the scene. They're circled up in this man called Simon the leper. Interestingly enough, one of the other gospels calls him a Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. But they're in this house, and it says in Mark and in Luke that there's a looking around the table, Lazarus, who's been raised from the dead, the sisters of Lazarus, Mary and Martha. Then we have Peter, James, John, Andrew, Judas. It's the who's who of the followers of Jesus. Imagine the conversation around that dinner table. And Jesus is teaching or speaking or responding, and out of the shadows, this woman arrives with an alabaster full of nard, a year's worth of wages, we learn. Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars. And Judas's eyes get really big. He's hungry. He's thinking jackpot, and he's licking his lips because Judas was responsible for all the resources of the followers of Jesus. He collected all the money, and he dispersed it the way that it was supposed to be dispersed. And so he's responsible as people make donations and sacrifices to Jesus and his followers. And so he's looking at this donation and saying, ha ha, look at that, an alabaster jar full of nard, thousands of dollars. And then with haste, she breaks the jar, dumping the entire contents on Jesus' head and causing a gasp in the room from the disciples. And Judas speaks up. Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Judas, the one who had been trusted with the group's funds, the treasurer, if you will, had been dipping his hand in the purse the whole time. Here's what John says in chapter 12, verse 6. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus responds, leave her alone. See, it was Judas's stomach that betrayed him. Judas was indignant, and he goes immediately to the chief priests for money. See, these two scenes are connected. The moment when Judas sees this waste, this sacrifice, 
And he thinks, what a waste. We could have used that money. Man, I could have taken some of that money. I've been stealing and siphoning off some of the money the whole time. And look what I could do with those funds. And he gets to the point where he's done. He's over it. No more sacrifice for Jesus, this whole worship thing. And he says, I'm going to go to the chief priest and see what money I can get from him. See, it's his appetite that pushes him and propels him. This is betrayal by appetite. Judas is God was his stomach. He betrays Jesus by his appetite for more. I appreciate how Randy Alcorn says, Satan works on the assumption that every person has a price. And often, unfortunately, he is right. Many people are willing to surrender themselves and their principles to whatever God will bring them the greatest short-term profit. It's exactly what's taking place here. Judas's God was his Stomach, And there is no limit to the extent our human nature will betray God and friend and self when our insatiable appetite is fed. See, we have this idea, this concept that if you just feed the beast, right, like you feed the hunger, well, then the hunger will be satisfied and you can move on. It's where this really um, poorly constructed argument about getting sin out of our system comes from. You know, like, if I just live now, like I'm young, you hear this from teenagers or 20-somethings ago, I just need to do this now. I need to just use this substance now or try this behavior now or live in this culture or in this community now. I'll get this out of my system and then I'll come back to following God. And it's completely untrue. It's a fallacy. And it's incredibly dangerous because we know that when the appetite is fed, there's only one thing that the appetite wants, and that is more and more and more and more. And Paul says in Philippians 3.19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. That feeding the appetite only requires continuing to feed the starving Appetite, And so Jesus knowingly says, you cannot serve God and money. It's not the money in itself. It's not the materials in itself. It's not the behavior sometimes even in itself. It's the hunger. So this is, in Judas's case, betrayal by appetite. And yet we see this amazing remedy to squashing that appetite. In the moment of sacrifice, the counter to appetite is sacrifice. The antidote for appetite is sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 10, it says, For she has, this is Jesus speaking, for she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever there, this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And yet here we are 2,000 years later speaking of this woman and this woman's sacrifice. Jesus was intentional in including it. And in all four Gospels, this story is listed just as he said, so that we would not forget that there is a sacrifice that's the antidote to the betrayal of appetite. And it's done with haste. It's done now. J.E. McFadden says, it's too late to break the alabaster box when Jesus is in his grave. For she has done, Jesus says, verse 10, a beautiful thing to me. 
Okay, so fast forward to the next scene. Let's look at the next betrayal. We're going to actually skip over the Last Supper for a minute, and I'll come back to that. But I want to jump to the garden, this scene of the Garden of Gethsemane in verse 36. Then Jesus went with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And talking with him, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back in its place, for all, you take, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? Then he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. This is betrayal by flesh. And... At face value, you would look to the Judas kiss and the most famous betrayal probably in all of Scripture. And you would say, certainly this is the moment in which Judas was betraying Jesus with this Judas kiss. And yet I ask, who is Jesus rebuking in this scene? It's not Judas. It's three times his disciples when he said, you need to stay watchful. You need to pray. Wake up. Because the only way to overcome the flesh is through prayer. This is betrayal by flesh, and it has to do specifically with Peter. We arrive with Jesus, Peter, James, and John in the garden. Jesus is deliberate and intent on completing his mission. So he takes his most trusted friends to the very place where the story unraveled at the beginning of time, the garden. Where Adam and Eve walked unashamed with one another and with their father, God. It's the very place 
where they were deceived by the serpent. It's the very place where God the Father said, one day I will crush the head of that serpent and he will bruise the heel of the second Adam, Jesus Christ. One day this story will be complete. One day the tides are going to turn. And it's here in this garden where the, the final temptation of Jesus would not regard appetite or influence, not the way that it did in his first temptation, Jesus with Satan. No, this is his final temptation in the garden where in the darkest night of his soul, Jesus would say, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow. And it was here in the garden that Jesus would overcome the flesh of his humanity. The flesh desire, the flesh craving, the flesh weakness to feel crushed and perplexed. But that's more than we can say for his companions. It's here that we find Peter and James and John give in to their heavy eyelids and go to sleep. Jesus returns and says, watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. He begins to call attention to the betrayal of their flesh. Joseph Parker says, all the great work in life is done in solitude with loved ones a few paces behind, with the dearest out of sight, with no one there but the soul and God. He says, win your battle there and the other fighting becomes quite easy. See, the war that they were waging, the war that Jesus knew Peter, James, and John, and we as later followers of Jesus would need to overcome was a battle of flesh against the flesh so that we could overcome the spiritual war that'll be waged for our soul. For Jesus knows the very war he waged was against the flesh, the fear of abandonment, the crushing, the isolation. It's the battle these three brave and tired men will endure. And he says, don't give in to the flesh. Paul writes again in Galatians chapter 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. These things are counter in opposition to each other. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And it's this very test that Peter is about to fail. Look at verse 51. Let me back up. Verse 50, Jesus said, friend, do what you came to do. This is to Judas. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Verse 51 And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. John lets us know in his gospel, chapter 18, that this, in fact, was Peter. Peter who drew his sword. Peter who was ready for a flesh-driven war. Peter who gave in to the flesh in the moment, not recognizing the spiritual battle that was taking place. Peter thinks, this is time. Let's go. And he pulls his sword and swings it. The accuser comes. The soldiers arrive. And he thinks he's waging war against the flesh. And in all reality, there is a spiritual battle that Jesus has called him to that he's neglected, that he's betrayed. Why did he do it? I think it was because he was afraid. I think he was motivated by fear, much like he was in verse 74 when the rooster crows three times and these people challenge Peter, and he profusely denies Jesus again and again, for he was afraid. For Peter's operating out of his flesh-motivated fear. What if, is the question in his mind. 
Letting his flesh and his fear lead the way, Peter betrayed Jesus. Which is why Jesus says, prior to that, if you think I'm on a rabbit trail, let me bring you back to the middle of the path here of what Jesus is actually teaching and what he's trying to help his disciples learn. He says, watch and pray, verse 40, that you may not enter to temptation. This is a spiritual battle. And it's a flesh-driven betrayal. And yet in the very verse here, Jesus provides the antidote. The remedy for flesh-driven betrayal is prayer. Counter to the flesh is prayer. Calling his disciples to prayer. Now rewind with me to the third and final scene that we see which takes place in the upper room. We call it the Passover, where there's yet a third betrayal, yet a third group of people involved. On verse, in verse 17, it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and, and, they, prayed the Passover, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as, is, as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You've said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he, had given thanks to, when, when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom." Now again, we see this scene, we see Jesus directing his disciples, and yet there's a betrayal between the lines here. It's not the betrayal of Judas, we've already spoken to that. It's the betrayal of the ignorant followers of Jesus, not knowing what they're saying or what they're committing to. This is betrayal by ignorance. Let me read for you a few verses in series that follow this passage. Verse 31 says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter said to them, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. But all this has taken place, verse 56, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. And in verse 69 through 74, we see the scene where Peter denies Jesus three times before the rooster crows. He denied it before them all. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man, he said. 
Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. These men didn't know what they didn't know. They're operating out of ignorance. They don't understand what they're actually saying or committing to. And so in ignorance, they promised to stay and then they fled. They didn't know what was being asked or what would be required of them. And so they made empty promises, promises that they could not keep. Which is why in verse 22, I would point to these men as betraying Christ by ignorance because of one very simple, poignant line, one question they ask when Jesus alludes to betrayal, each one of them asked in verse 22, Is it I, Lord? See, they didn't understand the gravity of their commitment to Christ. They didn't understand the cost. And even in their own committed words saying, I will never, their mind is waffling and they're saying, but it, will I? See, it's out of ignorance. And that's why in this very scene, I believe Jesus institutes this moment of remembrance that calls a tangible attention to the sacrifice that's been made so that our commitment can remain so grounded in believing what's been done, in believing what's been accomplished, in believing in the forgiveness, in believing in the assurance of the word so that our commitments cannot be made in ignorance but be well informed. But we're forgetful people. And so our remedy for ignorance is remembrance. It's why we come again and again and again back to what we call the Lord's table. It's why Jesus circled his disciples. And he had this meal. This was a well-documented, instituted meal by the Jewish customs. This meal was to remember what God had done for all of Israel. This was a meal that was shared around the table with a sacrificial lamb and the blood of the lamb having been painted over the doorpost of every Hebrew home back in Egypt allowed for the death angel to pass over, that's what they call it, the Passover, to pass over that house and spare their firstborn. When in all of Egypt, every firstborn was killed so that the Pharaoh, the leader, would finally say, be gone with you, Israel, and God set his people free. See, the Passover was to remind our hearts, remind the Hebrew hearts and minds that God has been faithful to set his people free. And so Jesus said, just as you've remembered that, now remember this, my blood, my body, my lamb, my sacrifice will be spilled out so that you can be free from the bondage of your flesh, from the ignorance of your mind, and from the hunger and the craving of your appetite, you'll be liberated from that. So remember, that's why we take communion. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's look at, at the, the script here. In verse 26, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Where have I seen this before? Jesus holding bread and breaking it and making something that could feed thousands. Well, it's in a village across Galilee. 
where Jesus took a loaf and he broke it and fed everyone, making something out of nothing. And then he takes the, the cup, verse 27, and he had given thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Where have I seen this before? Jesus holding a cup. Well, at a wedding in Cana where he takes a scoop of water and it turns to wine. Jesus makes something out of nothing. And then he takes this cup of wine and says, this is the blood. He turns this wine into blood. And he says, this is the covenant of my new blood. He makes something that's very intangible and insignificant, eternally significant in the forgiveness of sin. See, Jesus is making something out of nothing. He's taking our betrayal. He's taking our flesh and our appetite and turning it into something eternally significant in the forgiveness of all of those sins. And so he says, remember, 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 where have we seen this before? When God scooped up dust and he breathed life into it, making mankind, making something significant out of something insignificant. Do this in remembrance of me. The old has gone, the new has come. And he says this, he institutes this, he commands this because Jesus knows that our appetite will overtake us if we forget. Because he knows that our flesh will fail us if we operate in the flesh. Because he knows that our ignorance will mislead us. And so he says, remember, three scenes, three betrayals, appetite, flesh, and ignorance, three remedies, three antidotes, sacrifice, prayer, and remembrance. And so we're going to do exactly as Jesus instructed for us to do this morning. We're going to take communion, which, which is clearly outlined here, that we would take the bread that represents the broken body of Christ, and we would take the cup that represents the blood that was shed for our sins, and we would remember what he did so that we could remedy our own betrayal. I'm going to pray as our ushers come forward to serve. Father, would you lead us to examine our hearts and the own betrayal we hold inside? Lord, we, our eyelids are heavy. We're sleepy. God, we're, we're motivated by sword at times. We want to stand and fight. God, our, our, our minds are convoluted and unclear on what we're actually promising and committing sometimes. And so, Lord, would you clarify every single one of these principles this morning and may we see the power of remembering the sacrifice you made. The power of forgiveness in that sacrifice. The power of healing and overcoming our betrayal. Lord, teach us and lead us as we consider and commune. Amen.